If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey folks, it's the Unsung Podcast Part 2 with Andy Focus. Um We've been away for a week and now we've all come back to record in the same place <laughs> But at a different time With the exact same settings and temperament Yes, uh, this week we're uh, going to be talking about some records that Andy really likes um, That he thinks are unsung Andy, what are those albums? Uh, as far as I remember from the email, um, the <laughs> album by the uh, band, in no particular order, Jar Crew, um, the album was called Breakdance Euphoria Kids. Which is very me, because as you can tell, I'm well into breakdancing. Um, not kids, <laughs> I should add. Um, uh, euphoria, well, yeah, natural. Yeah. Well, you know, euphoria, I think, you know, with you've got to understand uh, the instincts for and against euphoria. Uh, it's like your shag, marry, avoid. Shag, marry, avoid. Breakdance, euphoria, avoid. kids. Um, I mean, mate, I'm in my 40s now. Shagging and marrying. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, uh, New Kingdom. If unicorns, no, it's called. Um, no, that's 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 the, the the first single off it. Paradise don't come pa- cheap. Paradise don't come cheap. Yeah, Jesus Christ! I'm just saying the songs <laughs> I like off the record. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I've had a traumatic. Uh, I've had a traumatic time. Uh, show some fucking understanding, man. Um, uh, and the third record is the God Machine uh, scenes from the second story.
nice. All very different. Yes, very, All very, very different. different. Uh, summing them up in a few words, I mean, Jarkru is kind of like post British post hardcore type vibe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the God Machine, uh, I'd, I'd affectionately describe it as uh, Perry Farrell doing karaoke to Cult of Luna. And um, interesting. I know what Perry Farrell <laughs> is, but I don't know what Cult of Luna is. So I just. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, and New Kingdom. Uh, it was a really hard one for me to put my finger on because some people were calling them rap rock, some people were calling it rap. It was rap rock was really rubbing me up the, the wrong way. But oh, then, yeah, it's a horrible when, when thing I heard, say, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, that's a very loaded term. Um, well, what, what order would you like to tackle them in, Andy? The Mate, same what, or reverse? You, you guys, you guys go for it. I don't, I don't mind. Right. Well, in that case, let's just start with Jar Crew. Talk us through it, Andy. Jar Crew, uh, breakdance euphoria, kids. What is it? Why is it? And uh, when is it? <laughs> Well, to give you an idea of why it is, you'd have to really know and have met Jar Crew, who, when I met them, I mean, they were children. Like, uh, And I don't just mean because by function of their age. I've met people who are 19 or 20 who weren't children, you know. They weren't fully developed adults, but they were, you know, they, they could easily pass as 30 or fucking... Uh, get involved in an adult world in, in any way. Jar Crew were like the Bash Street kids, <laughs> like literally the Bash Street kids and we were doing a show in Le Pub in Newport and a guy we knew called Richard or Chill as he was n- normally called but I've always struggled it's ridiculous since I'm now known as Falco because it, it was a it was a nickname even though it obviously has an etymology through my surname I kind of fought it for years because I just wasn't comfortable with not being called by one of my names. But everybody called this guy Chill, and I really struggled with that, especially since he seemed pretty stressed at times, it seemed. <laughs> but he's, he's a lovely guy. He's a lovely guy. He's a, he's a bit of a legendary fixture of the um, of the Cardiff music scene, worked at Club of Bark. Great sound engineer, lovely guy. And he was doing sound for this, this band who looked just like work-experienced kids, and they were sound-checking before they were opening for us at the show. And... They were all playing different things on the guitars. They all looked really uncomfortable. Not in any sense, and I say this as a compliment, not cool people in any sense of the word. Like, odd people. Interesting odd, but odd. And um, they were playing all these different things. The singer looked like, I don't even know, like something from A Nightmare Before Christmas. Just (laughs) recently given new daps. And, um... (laughs) But then they just started playing and it was just magic. It was like, it was like watching, it was like watching the very imperfect, but just active creation before your own eyes. Like, and it was just the definition of the way subsequently people would go on to write about Les Savvy Fav or, I mean, I'm thinking about them particularly, whereas when I actually saw them, it was a, a it was a very good band, but it was a guy running around in front of a normal indie rock band. Mm-hmm. Like, though I I quite enjoy the record Inches, like the the start yeah. of that record. That's, some a, great, that's, that's a, I think it's a terrific record. It's, it's very great, unusual it's, though. It's their yeah, most unusual album. Really, it's some really good. It's the first thing I heard by them. Some really good stuff on there. But Jar Crew were just. I, I've I've heard lots of stuff like that, and I've heard lots of stuff like that, which is more self-consciously generic I suppose mm-hmm. but they were just I don't know I suppose like you could maybe saying about Dude Dallas when we had a conversation uh, which was in last week's episode 
um, which, uh, <laughs> nice. you know, talking, thank you, thank you so much, um, saying it, it kind of happened at the right time. I think for Jar Crew, pretty much all of their developments as musicians or they're coming across new things or dealing with things all probably happened at the same time. It was just like a perfect marriage. And then when I heard the album, I was initially very disappointed with it because it just didn't have the same click to it. But listening back to it over the years, it has some, I mean, would I call them songs, really? I mean, they are songs, you know, in the common lexicon, but they're not songs in, say, McCluskey songs are pretty simple things for the most part. Uh, they've got verses and choruses and fucking endless guitar motifs, which I probably should have said is one of the reasons why the third album sounded a lot different because you can't fucking keep doing that all the fucking time. <laughs> you know, you've got, just for your own sake of your insanity, you've got to change things up. <clears throat> but when I say Breakdance Euphoria Kids is an underrated album, I think it's got some fucking great, great songs on it. talking about the band that I saw mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. opposed to just the album because frankly the album the way it's produced is it's not a disc- it was done on a budget and a half I mean nothing it was done Community Music Wales it was originally recorded within a tiny studio and frankly it suffers from what a lot of low budget studios particularly at the time would have in that it was possible to record quiet or delicate things very well but when it gets loud it sounds like a local band at times you know, and yeah, that was years often weren't really familiar with, it, with yeah. a lot of loud music, and so that's that's a real. I think if it was properly recorded, it would be considered a classic of the genre. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's interesting because I, I actually I feel a little bit of kinship with this album. The, the both David and I were from sort of much more parochial haunts. Mark, would you more? Part He's of a city, city slicker. Yeah, yeah, I was born and but, bred in Glasgow, yeah. Yeah, so David was from way up north and I was from Stirling in the centre the centre of Scotland. And even though Stirling's not particularly remote, it's culturally remote. <laughs> it's fucking it's Antarctica when it comes to like any real sort of like music scene and things like that. Uh, and as a result, yeah, you had that same that same phenomenon where going to the local studio as soon as things got turned up, as you say, the sort of that quite hard to sort of to pinpoint, but that sort of sense of this is a local band manifested on the record because the engineers they just simply weren't really particularly familiar with capturing that stuff. So there's something really endearing about this record for me because mm. I can tell this band when they got this back to their house were wrestling with all the same doubts that I was wrestling with on our first half dozen attempts at recording demos. And Dave, I'm sure I'm sure you were in this, the same boat. Mm-hmm. Um, it, as you said, it's interesting as well because it's a snapshot of almost the exact same period I started playing music. I was a bit like you, Andy. I didn't really, I, don't, I didn't play my first concert until I was maybe 20. Uh, so I was really coming into music right at the, we started on January of 2000 as a band. And, you know, Trail of Dead, uh, At the Drive-In, Les Savvy Five, Blood Brothers, they were sort of what was happening as we started to kind of get into our, into our stride. And as you say, there were also a lot of sound alikes around at the time mm. who maybe didn't have the je ne sais quoi that those those bands had. Mm. It, it felt, being up in Scotland, that down in London, or certainly around, obviously congregating around London and around Fierce Panda, for example, that there, were, there was a real movement of bands of that sort of ilk. I mean, there was a little bit of jealousy on our part. We wanted to be part of that. But it was also some really good things, not just necessarily came from that at the time, but have since blossomed from that, from maybe the wreckage and the ruins and the compost of the bands that fell apart 
I mean, what other bands do you recall from that time? God, I can't really remember. Most bands I saw I just didn't like. Um, it's one of the, one of those reasons I've done music is I never really see things I'd like. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, looking back at Jar Crew now, I mean, even listening back to it the other day with the benefit of, you know, just years, I can hear little bits of Trail of Dead in there in a way that I couldn't hear back then because Jar Crew are far using the terminology of the music as opposed to in any other way, far spazier fucking band than something <laughs> like Trail of Dead. But you notice there's some of those kind of, I don't know what, what you call them, there's almost like Arabic kind of two-string kind of guitar uh, yeah. runs or whatever, like in, I don't, I don't even know what Trailer Dead songs are called, but there's that quite famous, Mistakes and Regrets, is it, which has that... Yes, yeah, I know what you... Yeah, there's that kind of style of riff, which was a, it's not particular to Trailer Dead, it's other, lots of other bands have used it. See, she Sells Sanctuary, very hard for a Geordie to say that. Um, <laughs> um, but... Uh, but there's little bits of that but to be honest with you I just that time in music for me was Jacques were one of the only bands who excited me that we played with it's why we wanted to play with them all the time because we loved playing with a band we thought were really great and we could go on afterwards sometimes we felt as if they did us but most of the Listen, time we felt as if we did them because we had fucking songs. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good feeling though. It keeps you on your toes when you, really you end up playing gigs with a band like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know Jar Crew appeared, the first time I really saw them on record was that Squirrel EP that Fierce Panda brought out in 2003. Mm-hmm. Uh, they shared that with Funeral for a Friend, the Copper Pot Journals, who we'd actually done shows with. Million Dead, who you might have heard of, Andy, mm. and uh, somewhere aware. This, and then, yeah. yeah, yeah, and a band called This Girl, who I remember seeing up in Glasgow. But there was also just prior to that, uh, Ruben had put stuff out in Fierce Panda, Jimmy Eat World, Stapleton, Kids Near Water. They were all in the same sampler. Ninety eight, mm. uh, you had stuff like Billy Mahoney. I was a big fan of Seafood. Certainly for the first two or three records I liked. I remember them. I mean, of those bands you described, I mean, Billy Mahoney were more of, again, more of a, 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 a fully respectfully, but more of a post-Rocky Slinty thing, weren't yeah. they? Is yeah, that, they were. They were they one, yeah. were they one too pure? I can't remember. But I think for most of the bands you described, Jar Crew were totally different from all of those bands. You know, because Jar is, Crew were several Jar- different things at once for, for better. Exactly, or worse. that's kind of what I was getting at. Jar yeah. Crew at various points, because Trailer Dead did actually release stuff on Fierce Panda at the same time as Interpol in 2000. Oh, and Jar yeah. Crew have got tiny little elements of a lot of the bands that were kicking in about that scene. So they're quite a nice synopsis of a lot of the different disparate sounds that were going about because they're very ambitious and they try to fold in all these different elements. I mean, there are are definitely post-rock songs, especially on this version of this album um, and amongst this this collection. And there are songs that are, as you say, spazzy-ish, very frantic, very manic, very sort of Blood Brothers-esque. We should probably 
say that Breakdance Euphoria Kids is hard to get hold of because it was a very mm. small release and it was resequenced and I believe partially remastered and then re-released the following year just as self-titled Jar Crew album um, where a just track list and some of the songs had been removed and a couple others had been added. You did ask me. You did ask me about that in advance, and so I messaged Kelson because obviously he was mm-hmm. subsequently in Future of the Left. Um, yep, that's the. And I said, and keyboard player, yep. doing a podcast tomorrow, and um, is there a reason for the tracklist change between the two Jarku albums? And he replied with, "Fuck knows." So, <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. But honestly, we're trying to get Jarku to do all of these shows we're doing with us at McCluskey next year. Yeah, and they're, they're lovely people, but they really are like it's like dealing with a gang of woodland sprites <laughs> who are eccentric even by the standards of other woodland sprites. You know, <laughs> like just trying to get them to say yes to a show, or trying to get and bear in mind, I love them here, trying to get the cunts to get their gear off stage. You know, because oh, they've got so God. much stuff. It's like one of those bands. They immediately go for a beer rather than unplugging. No, no, yeah. they, they, no, not, not even that. You see, because they're really lovely people. They stand there, taking the wishes of of well wishes that they just hadn't counted on at all, looking like <laughs> rabbits caught in headlights. You know, they because when we did shows with them like four years ago again, they were magnificent again because they're all great and Kelson's a fantastic frontman. I mean everything you'd want from a front man but getting the stuff off stage was like guys you know this whole night's happening around you fucking leg it with your <laughs> yeah with your synths and stuff yeah so, so they're did they reform in 2014 for the Le Pub event was that the first time they got back together I I think it might have been I, I don't I don't know yeah. so don't so know. the venue you mentioned at the start of, of that, that of that bit um, had a fundraiser in 2014 the uh, Le Pub in Newport and Wales mm. and I, I think uh, if I remember the lore rightly that they got back together to try and help that that bar and then that sort of like sparked this interest and, yeah, yeah and and you know again mostly apart from I think the guy who was editing Enemy at that time and about eight other people, nobody else particularly rated, me included, nobody else particularly rated him, you know, which is still insane to me because my anecdotal experience of seeing them is that nearly everybody who saw them was blown away, but it just didn't translate into anything. They were a weird band, actually, and I know we're not really talking about the album here, in that they really worked well as a support band. They they would play a thirty five maybe thirty five minute set, and they would steal. Whenever I saw them with other bands, they would steal the show from the support band every time I I saw them. I mean, I would say with a degree of ego, except when they played with us. But <laughs> sometimes they did steal it from us, and I don't say that very often. I don't. I don't. I mean, they they, yeah. they, they toured with Biffy Clyro, so I'm quite happy with that. <laughs> a young man, that's bait. So, um, so, so, but um, they were. But when they progressed to headline shows, I don't know if it was because they'd done so many supports, like so many for so many years. Whereas McCluskey never did, apart from the odd show, we never got a support tour. And that, in a way, defined us as a band because we were very much against the world, not in a way which needed an Alex Ferguson speech to 
to to propagate. We just fucking were from an early stage. Whereas Jar Crew played with everybody, you know, in the same way that, and again, some of the nicest guys I've ever met pulled apart by horses for a while, supported every band in the world. Yeah, it, it was it, it was like they won every. I know this isn't the case. I know it's to do with agents, but it was like they were on everybody's Facebook page. You know, everybody's got that mate where <laughs> someone announces a tour and straight away someone's like, hey, can we support? And you're like, my God, I hadn't even posted it yet. It was just in drafts. How did you, how did you fucking know that was coming? Um, but they were everywhere. But when they stepped up to doing 45 minutes, they were still a good band. But when they did an hour, it just, it, I'm not saying it didn't seem like their heart was in it, it just had a different vibe to it. I, th- I think bearing in mind as well, they only ever produced one full album, if you, t- yeah. if you ignore the fact that this was sort of reshuffled, this one. Mm. They only ever produced one album's worth of material is maybe a better mm. way of putting it. So doing an hour set without the luxury of being able to sort of pick and choose and or, or arrange the flow, give your audience a bit of rest and, you know, all the things that I'm sure you take for granted now, given the amount of albums that Future Left have got to draw on, and McCluskey as well I, th- I think they didn't have that luxury So stepping up to an hour is quite ambitious yeah. And it's maybe not necessarily even that fair Maybe mm. your, their success or their popularity Or just the circumstances are maybe actually hobbling them a wee bit in that situation A, a, a little bit perhaps I mean I did hear a lot of the demos they did for their second record I think what one of the problems and, and this isn't even what I think from what I've garnered having talked to members of the band, especially Kelson, who's still a really good friend now, even if he is a dentist. um, (laughs) It's another track title. Nobody (laughs) ever really gave them a deadline. And anybody who works in the arts in general knows, anybody who's ever got anything finished knows the value of a deadline. You need a deadline and even you need to learn. We learned trying to do the third McCluskey record the first time. At sometimes a deadline, even when you work hard and you try your best, it fucks you and it hollows you out from the inside when you don't succeed in, in making it. But you still need that deadline. Nobody really gave them a deadline and they just swam on for a bit doing things and writing some good songs. There was a couple of those songs which, again, they touched in a more commercial direction without being shit. Mm-hmm. There was... Um, some song about books about my life or something but it was a it was a song which I mean we always just used to I always used to joke and call She Will Only Bring You Happiness the McCluskey song a pavement cover because it definitely came about from well it just sounded like a even though it doesn't sound like a pavement song it has that kind of construction to me and I guess it's a flippant way of disregarding something you've actually put all of your heart and soul into. Yeah, you know? it's quite defensive, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, get, it's getting the criticism in first. You know, it's getting, it's getting, it's getting ahead of the curve. And the way you describe them, they sound like a band that would have benefited from a wee bit of sort of guidance and you know guardrails and and, mm. and structure. Um, I mean, they do touch on some really. Strong poppy moments I mean the, 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 yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of take issue a wee bit with poppy What I probably mean is accessible They touch on some really accessible moments Within even just this record um, But Mark, I know you were pretty You were pretty hot in this record as well You you liked it, didn't you? It seems quite up your street Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of really it really resonated with me Because in Poetis it sounds like Fugazi You know, and like That's the, that's the, the hook for me You know, I had the angular Kind of emo vibe 
both like you know early emo vibe, which I, I really enjoyed. You could hear I could hear bits of that in it, and I can imagine them being a bit like at the driving, where legendarily supposed to be live. Like I can imagine seeing them live in that set and just being pure chaos, mm. you know, because their music sounds disjointed but not in a not in a bad way. Yeah, no, I mean, can I can I can I just say very clearly, at the driving were fucking manic life, but they wouldn't allow their audience to do fucking anything. So it was a little bit, yeah. <laughs> it was a little bit hypocritical. They kept stopping the set and being like, "Right, you're jumping about too much. Don't dance. Sit down. Yeah, don't dance. <laughs> sir, sir, <laughs> sir, you appear to be eating a packet of blackcurrant chewits. <laughs> you know, only cherry chewits are, are allowed in Carling Academy venues. Uh, personally, probably maybe because I wasn't like at the drive-in, just just passed me by taste. But I, I don't know. It's, it's like with anything, isn't it? There's a degree of performative which appears real to one person, which appears just performative to another person. Mm-hmm. When I see at the drive-in, I just, I don't know. With other types of music, it isn't the same. But with rock music, I either see my people or I don't see my people. That's not a racial point. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> but I just don't, I just, it just wasn't whatever. I think the thing... You're definitely on there with the Fugazi thing, which again, Fugazi are, I mean, probably objectively the best band that ever, you know, I'd say objectively, but in terms Existed. of the, the people I know, that would be, I don't know, I don't know if they're everybody's favourite band, but I think overall they'd come out at number one if there was a survey of alternative rock people who've also can read two paragraphs without, you know, falling over and hitting their head on a, on a table. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that would be the... Well, you know. see, that, that rules out my choice of Jesus Lizard then, so... Right. Well, <laughs> Jesus Lizard would probably be second or third, wouldn't they? Now they've hit their head in a lot of things. Yeah, oh, a lot, yeah, <laughs> a lot of things. And again, just a, just a, the Jesus Lizard is magnificent as they are, don't really write songs, do they? In the way that no, it's, know, it's f- anti-songs. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, yeah. Forgot yeah, they, 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 they are when it's like when people call Future Left on McCluskey noise rock. I go, whatever works for you. But the Jesus Lizard are a noise rock band. You know that mm-hmm. if if we need to fucking put labels to, we are meant to be a pop band. We're just it's not a catchphrase. We're just genuinely not very good at it. Like you know, it's meant to be <laughs> pop music. Um, but um, they, they definitely have that Fugazi thing. But I think the key thing when we were Jar Crew, when, whenever bands would have a funk or a, a jazzy element to it, dance, whatever you want to fucking call it, for me, it was bands, it would always be painful. Painful. Make me want to f- smash something. When Jar Crew did it, there was no... All the people, in, nobody in that band was, was posing. wasn't one pose that part was that part because that was that part all of it was real like every single part of it was even the bits you don't like that i didn't like were totally real i have this obsession with um people's motives um and it probably says a lot about me it's probably a worrying thing what and it makes me question why what's wrong with your motives are you really just in this because you want a harem or whatever what's fucking (laughs) wrong with you but Jarku were there because there was no other alternative for being there on that stage at that moment it wasn't a long-winded way to get to anywhere else and that was there in every note of their music I mean, given that this was 
their first and last uh, album to date. The, the, the songs wear their influences on their sleeves and uh, you know, from uh, the singles uh, like Paris and the New Math, which was the first thing they released. Had that accessibility to it, uh, mm. as did things like uh, was it Capo Baby? That was the other, the other yeah. single they put I out. Love that song. Oh, yeah. There's a couple of tracks got omitted from the reissue. I think it's a bit of a shame. I, th- I thought Bill Carson, which is the name of a character from the Man With No Name trilogy, I think. And, and mm. funnily enough, that track is this big, sprawling, almost post-rock song. Mm. The, the thing which makes some of it interesting and I, again, I can't remember which version I'm talking about, is the fact that some of the mixes are so wrong, as mm-hmm. in the, the drums are too quiet, right, for most of those records, for both of the records, whether Jar Crew and Breakdowns, mm-hmm. Euphoria yeah. Kings, which is weird because, frankly, the guy who really gelled that band together was Rod, the drummer. He wasn't just a drummer. He was, a again, a brilliant musician. Quite a loose drummer, but a very inventive multi-instrumentalist um so that was a bit of a like an odd that was a bit of an odd feature of it and say even on that song i think it's the one bill carson for somebody who is basically only known for insulting people in creative ways live in his song titles i'm actually very bad at other band song titles so you'll have to excuse me but i think bill carson's the one that's about 10 minutes long and even quite early on there's some really loud juno in it Like to the point where any other mixing engineer would go, can we take that down by seven dB or something? Because it's, <laughs> it's it's far too loud. I think in a in a in a way in a reaction I've only ever had before when I was reviewing a OC's record years ago, and I'm like, I don't necessarily love all of this stuff, but what is great about it is he's like, the guitar is going to be that loud. Fuck you. You know, whereas yeah, yeah. whereas if Butch Vig was mixing it, the guitar would have gone, like we're going to have it there. And even though that can sometimes go either way, it can end up making you hate a record. Sometimes it's amazing because it totally puts this thing out there as a as an outlier. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's slightly naive, but it does make it feel yeah. very sincere. Um, and I, I would I would just say if, you, if you're listening to this and you're interested in checking out this record, the original issue of it also had a track called Squadron Number no. Nine as the closing number on on that one. That was released as a B-side, but that's got a kind of a, a, a part of that kind of at the drive-in freak-out style that they did when they were good. Uh, do a see, it's it's weird to say because you, you mentioned at the drive-in, Blood Brothers, 
Chill the Dead. These aren't bands I... These are bands I have respect for in their own ways, mm-hmm. but they're not bands I particularly like. Jar Crew, to me, are at the midpoint a lot of these bands, yeah. maybe. And I, but I love them. So it's so I, mean, I think I think a lot... Uh, all those bands did thing did certain things well and that was part of why they got popular but also I, I agree with you there's things about all those bands that put me off them and, and put me off saying that I'm an out and out fan of them whereas I think there's elements the good elements pop up in this record uh, without the baggage of the performative things for example but yeah that, that last song that squadron number nine I think is good it's a shame it didn't make the reissue but overall that record is a really interesting suggestion. It's a name that I remember seeing. I remember hearing little bits of stuff in isolation. But as you say, it's very unevolved, but it, it, it benefits from it in a lot of ways. And it's definitely worth listening to if any of those names of bands that we've mentioned are, are up your street. In any other hands, like if, a, if an adult record label had been involved with that, they would have listened to some of the choruses of some of those songs. And they would have gone, well, actually, what... What they would have done with a little involvement is they would have improved it. Um, but what they would have done with the involvement they would have inevitably ended up having would be of ruining it. But I don't think that... Although, having said that, I remember seeing Jar Crew headline over a band called Funeral for a Friend in Club of Bark in year whatever, I don't know. And there was about 40 people there. And I'd never seen Funeral for a Friend before. And I remember talking to whoever afterwards and going, that band will go nowhere. (laughs) Four months, within four months. And apparently, I don't know them as people, apparently, you know, all very nice and all that. This is the thing. When you meet people in the nice, you can't have, you can't really dig into them anymore you can't it's it's fucking just human nature you re- unless you uh, you know absolutely detest them i want to steal their wife or whatever um <laughs> they i i was like they'll go nowhere and i think it was four months afterwards they were selling at two nights in brixton academy yeah so well well who's uh what do you want to go for next then andy whatever man there's, there's two you pick one or two like, that coin yeah, like somebody choosing the IKEA rug when you go to IKEA. You know, there's the two rugs. There's the there's the one which is eighteen quid that everyone you know has, or you can go for the one which is thirty five quid, which will be a little bit more susceptible to stains. Um, <laughs> but maybe the guy you know who's who's like a first year doctor has. So it's up to you. Well, do you know what I I actually did yesterday, which I think I've taken a big step in my life here. I had to go and get a headlamp or a head, just the bulb in my headlight replaced in my car. Right. And the guy said, do you want the £8, the £10 or the £15 bulb? (laughs) And I said, I I went for the £10. I think that's the first time I haven't gone the cheapest bulb. That was a disappointing ending though. I thought you were going to say you'd got to 15 no, yeah. I didn't do 15. And so no, I've always been an £8 bulb sort of guy. <laughs> punched the guy in the 10, shoulder. So. Yeah, but there's another, there's another thing that um, there's that study which shows that the, the bottle of the wine. The second cheapest bottle of wine. The second yeah. cheapest bottle of wine is usually because for me, my logic is I never buy the cheapest thing. But yeah. actually, my logic now, especially when it comes to say recording gear or whatever, is 
just buy you think you thing you want it's beautiful i'll deal with a credit card debt <laughs> yeah, can, can i just say we started the last episode at ikea and we're back there again yeah well <laughs> yeah, that's true. you know that's 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 post-capitalism for you man <laughs> you know we're getting old right yeah. the god machine i've made the call Yeah, the God Machine, but quite an interesting band actually. Quite tragic. Yeah, yeah. very tragic. You've gone mm. for their debut scenes from the second story. Yeah, yeah. Well, the second so, record yeah. wasn't really finished, so yeah. because of the dying thing. So yeah, uh, yeah, good, so, yeah. So they're from uh, from San Diego, and mm. yeah, first half of the nineties, led by Robin Proper, Shepherd, mm. Jimmy Fernandez, and. Austin Lynn Austin mm. but funnily enough although they're from San Diego they were sort of moved over to the UK and mm. most of their success came over here in Europe mm. um, Scott Walker style well yeah indeed <laughs> um, and then yeah like sort of tragically their um, career was cut short when Jimmy Fernandez he just seemed to he was a uh, um, brain hemorrhage he just suddenly I, I believe so I believe so yeah, yeah. I've got a bit of a thing where um and this is certainly no, no slight, however, I've got a bit of thing with, with, with death. It's kind of a policy to not, sometimes to not even mention how somebody died because it, it does somebody disservice, especially when they died young, that they end up being defined by their death. Because yeah. even when somebody died young, the death is the last moment. It comes from, you know, having friends who died young or whatever. You don't want to just think of them. Oh, I remember him. Oh, yeah, he died young. <laughs> you know, imagine if that was your legacy. Oh, yeah, he died young. Yeah, he fell fell down a lift shaft or whatever. Oh, poor cunt. Well, in All terms of stuff. legacy, the God Machine are a, a very interesting one. Very interesting, yeah. yeah. And I believe he actually died. It might have been on the day that Kurt Cobain died. Really? Uh, so, talk about burying... Burying bad news, fucking Tory 2000 and or two thousand, you know, yeah. September the 11th style. You know, yeah. talk about burying bad news. There it, you know, there, there it is. There's another reason why the band doesn't probably have to a degree the legacy the, I think it deserves. The, the lore, yeah. I mean, I think as I understand it, without meaning to labor the point, uh, Jimmy died just at the, almost at the conclusion of of the album sessions, but it wasn't quite finished. And the band I decided so, yeah. they w- they would do no further work whatsoever on mm. the record uh, in his honor. Even the track names weren't decided. That's why it's got things like Train Song, mm. Life Song, things mm. like that. They they literally said the band is over. Jimmy's gone. We're not going to even attempt to continue with this, and we're mm. going to freeze it. This is a snapshot of his last moments, and that is his legacy in the sense mm. that 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 second album. Wait, which makes it a little bit difficult because the album you've picked, I really enjoyed. I'm not so keen on the second album, but there's maybe sort of like good structural, practical reasons. It just doesn't uh, sound finished. Literally, yeah, it yeah. literally doesn't sound yeah. finished. That's the problem with it because I suspect because it literally wasn't finished. So yeah. you know, um, maybe those problems would have been resolved. Um, you just don't know. It doesn't sound like it to me, but 
it feels like it's going for a slightly different thing. This, yeah. the, the album you've picked is much more grandiose and ambitious. Uh, mm. Seventy-eight minute epic with like mm. huge kind of jazz prog things in it. Mm. Whereas the the second album seems like it's a little bit more uh, concise. Mm. Seems a, a little bit more understated, quiet. Yeah, yeah, focused, maybe slightly mm. more ambitious. Like they maybe had a sense of they could start to push this project in a not necessarily commercial, but a slightly more, you know, accessible direction. Um, not a million but, miles away from stuff like Low. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, not absolutely. a million miles away. I mean, a few still, you know, a good few intersections down the M4 away, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's certainly going for a similar whatever it is logo for. Yeah. So I was a wee bit dismissive in the in the preamble, but I did feel like I'm not a big fan of Jane's Addiction and their singer Perry Farrell. No, no. I am not massive into the vocal style uh, that, that the God Machine use. Musically, I think they're brilliant. I really like it. It's not it's not music that I've ever I've spent a lot of time with. But uh, I mean, I, I mentioned Cult of Luna, who are like a post metal band, but they're quite an analog post metal band. They're not something particularly clicky or stereo. They're, there's a lot of room and there's a lot of reverberation and imperfection in the music. We did an episode on them, David's a, a really big fan But um, it's definitely a twist on that genre To, to, to pair them with a vocalist like this mm. Does um, does it always work? I'm not sure um, I, No, I don't, I, I think it doesn't But again, going back to say I, I don't even have really touched it, it Just it being what it is It doesn't seem that You know, you've got you've got a guy who is is just there and I've I've met uh, Robin because he plays in a thing called Sophia now. And he used our friends who were a band, a post-rock band called Vito from Cardiff. They were basically kind of his backing band for a, a while. Mm-hmm. And he's a lovely guy, very unassuming, very, doesn't look like a rock guy, really good-looking kid, like, you know, North American guy, but doesn't see, I think he lives in Belgium, I think. Um, very, you know, very, very nice fellow and all that. And Sophia is more understated, definitely, in a way, maybe that second God Machine album was headed I mean vocally again it's not something where I would pick it out as my first choice and I've always had I mean McCluskey's first website was at the website it's called myspecialpain.co.uk and obviously my pain and sadness is more sad and painful than yours just taking the piss out of well the, you know the comp- competitive misery which now now we have on Twitter in a way which is also real that's the problem isn't it it's also actually real and worthy of satire at the same time that's the fucking awful thing about it um, but there's a 
I'm not a fan of narrative in music in the sense that I've always felt as if, if you need that narrative to make it interesting, then you should probably spend longer on the music. Um, but you need a narrative to sell music, which is why it still doesn't astonish me that the God Machine aren't better known. But there's something about that, the anguish and the pain of that first record, which is, again is something which would naturally not attract me, which seems to... Uh, there's something about it which seems to prefigure the things which actually happened to them. Um, yeah. Now, and as much as I said I'm not a fan of narrative in music, as in, you, you, I, I don't know, I was about to say something very dismissive there, which would have been very funny and would have and probably ended, you know, end up with me up in another <laughs> fucking be, online beef with people that I just frankly haven't got the time for time for. I'm literally a father now, you know. But um, narrative for a band, I think, is cheap. But we all have our personal narratives with how we relate to records in the sense that this record came along. For example, Dude Dallas, apart from being a really good, concise album, is particularly important to people because the kind of people who come to shows, because usually it happened at a certain time in their lives and it clicked in a way. Maybe it's usually for people maybe in their second year of university or something or when they were usually when you're between 19 and 22, that Thing which takes you from your maybe a teenage loves and drives you into your adulthood and the music you associate with that, you know? I listened, I bought the God Machine. I went to Cardiff from Newcastle for my university open day and I'd uh, been to, the only other place I went to was Hull and I I left Hull fairly quickly. Let me say it was, <laughs> it was either Hull to do English or, or Cardiff to do journalism. And um, I went to Hull and I was like, yeah, I grew up in terraced houses. I know what they're about. I don't need to go to a place which is just terraced houses. And how um, is the misery that many albums aspire to? Well, <laughs> it, you could definitely see it. I think that's a little unfair, but I think I could definitely see it being used as a a jumping off point for a certain outsider art. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, and so I went to Cardiff for the open day, and I'm from Newcastle, especially at the time, it was like a seven hour journey. Doing it as a, I was wasn't a worldly eighteen year old, definitely not a seventeen year old. Whatever I was going down to the open day, and in out basically, I just went to the talk, and then I just walked around and looked for record shops, like any self respecting person going to you know open, you know a, a university open day should do. And I went to the hour price in Cardiff, and I bought. I'd read this review in Melody Maker for the God Machine album, and I bought the God Machine album on cassette. And it was like fucking even cassettes back then were like eight ninety nine or nine forty nine or something. It's insane to think that because CDs CDs were like sixteen quid then. Um, so with inflation, that would mean CDs would be like thirty four pounds now or something. It's fucking <laughs> crazy. Um, so I bought it on cassette, and I think I actually might have bought it because it was maybe had a pound off or something, and I didn't have much money. And, but I liked the review. I can't even remember the the exact wording of the review, but it was one of those few reviews where it, I think basically the essence of it was it's like listening to these guys and they're playing in the middle of a crumbling Roman amphitheatre and it's just everything's falling apart around them as, as they're playing. But there's, there's, there is a defiance, but really there's just a sadness as it's all sinking into the fucking mire.
I mean, one part of the story is the review was actually perfect because it actually did invoke the album rather than going, the riff on song four is a good riff. Um, but I listened to it on the whole train journey home, basically. So it's a formative, part of a formative part of my life. It's part of an adventure I went on. Um, but there's also something absolutely magnificent about it, like something lost and I'm not into like the song It's All Over which even though it's one of maybe one of instantly the la least striking songs on the record and I'm not a ballad guy like you know I'd always be growing up I'm like skip the ballad skip the ballad whatever you know fast forward through the ballad in some cases <laughs> something about that song which is so lost and beautiful and those words in anybody else's mouth would come across as trite just 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 beautiful and I, I'm not a person who is then or now take, you know, taken or affected in that way by music like sadness I'm like yeah you're sad fucking join the club fucking let's Let's fucking get get on with it. That's basically my attitude to music and and life. Because I I have my moments where I sink into it, and uh, but I've just never. I've always felt as if there was an indulge indulgence to it. But there's something about that record. And it does have a real invention. Like songs like that song. I don't I don't know to what degree you listen to the album. But the song called the Desert Song. Released yeah. as a fucking single. Yeah, it's got a bloody one. Absolute yeah. madness, like <laughs> you know, it's absolute. I mean, it's weird as fuck, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. weird. That's some of the, uh, the earlier songs are riffy songs, mm. like you say, with the guy sounding as if he's doing a not a Perry Farrell impression as such, but the vocal isn't that far away from it, is it? In mm. terms of yeah. its character, it would be it would be ridiculous to deny it, since everybody who listens to the band says that. Yeah, um, it is very early nineties in that way. It's yeah. quite it, it's it's the vocal is the thing that dates it more than any other element because there mm. are still bands doing sort of post metallic, post rocky doom stuff that are not doing it any better than this mm. musically. Certainly it's the mm -hmm. vocal that pins it. And I think also the fact that that kind of wistfulness sort of summons some of the late eighties stuff like Cocteau Twins and this Mortal Coil and stuff. There's like something quite melodramatic. Mm. That might it. be the case. I'm I'm genuinely not familiar the kind of music you but actually all of that music you just referred I'm not actually familiar with a lot of it mm -hmm. um, I but but yeah that's probably the case because let's face it they didn't come from nowhere did they exactly yeah but that's yeah, maybe an interesting thing as to possibly why it appeals to to you but then also maybe why they didn't appeal to a much wider audience because they were so hard to define um, mm. And I, I was, I've, yeah, I was reading an interview with, uh, or like a sort of a look back at the story of the God Machine. I mean, we talk about Bill Hicks, but it seems that that maybe their marketing didn't know what the hell to do with them because mm. they didn't fit 
into any slot at all very at much that so, time. Yeah. Which I mean is is a great thing musically because you're like oh I can pick and choose and you know it's not defined by genre, but um, yeah, yeah it's think, really interesting looking back and seeing that they they just never got in the slipway of anything. Even their PR company made a Jane's Addiction comparison, which I seem I think is sort of like an odd decision on their part given yeah. the music. So yeah, I think that it does seem like they weren't sure how to pitch them to to, to get that optimum sort of. Impact. It does sound like specifically like she said, that sounds like oh that's a single that we can, you know, hit for the radio and, you know, try and get that alt rock Lollapalooza thing. But then, you know, you listen to something like yeah, the desert song or seven, and you're mm-hmm. like, oh, how the fuck do we sell that? That's, there's there's know, jazz, that's... proggy jazz in it. It's just it's it's yeah, it's yeah very it's off the deep end at points. Yeah. Yeah, proggy jazz, that even proggy jazz fans have got to sit through lots of other stuff because as much as proggy yeah. jazz, jazz fans think they like to eschew convention, they really only want to listen to proggy jazz. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's like, oh, have we, have we got you now? Have we got you? Have you finally lost your heart to the band? Well, here's something you'll fucking hate. <laughs> don't, I mean, don't get me back into my rants about things like niches, man. Because the, the the conformity, the anti-conformity is conformity in a lot of those genres. And the invention here is that these guys do straddle a lot of different things, and there's like they do it at a lot of risk. The risk mm. is that, that it never really took the way it mm. possibly deserves yeah, totally. to. Absolutely. Yeah. You, this was my introduction to it, mm. and um, I will go back to it. Oh, that's fantastic! That, well, that's fantastic. But they are a band who, in very small ways inspired a real devotion like back in the day I remember reading and it just shows you how difficult the music industry was at that time you know when that album came out it only sold 40,000 copies <laughs> <laughs> yeah, imagine yeah. that now yeah, like only 40,000 how post, did they live with themselves the post grunge landscape I guess mm. only 40,000 how, only did, 40, how did they cope the shame how dare the they sheer shame <laughs> Um, all right, well, shall we lo- move on to the last record, Mark? Yeah, so Paradise Don't Come Cheap by New Kingdom. And well, they, do you know the title of the album? Obviously. No, yeah, not, not, <laughs> not Unicorns or mm. anything else. Paradise mm. Don't Come Cheap. So, 96. Yeah, 1996, the second and last album. Um, yes. Can we stop making observation here? Andy, the three bands you chose, none of them have more than two albums. They're all very sort of like flash in the pan, short-lived projects for varying reasons. Mm. But do you think you have a subconscious attraction to the sort of tragic, sort of short-lived glory of, no, of some projects? Honestly, no. I think they were just records I really liked. And I think, to be honest with you, it shows how little of an instinct I have for music, which will become more wildly successful. <laughs> I mean, can't I can't back, deny, can't I can't deny there may be some truth in what you've said. But thinking about it, honestly, you said, you know, the email said about three under a 
mean, there are lots of other underrated albums, like Damien's band's last album, St. Pierre Snake Invasion, for, for other reasons, but it's difficult to know conclusively if those records are underrated because they're still kind of in rotation, as it were, mm-hmm. whereas those records are maybe definitively underrated um, because... Nobody's doing anything else with them. Yeah. Um, there's an end point. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's a, there's there's an ending, or at least or at least enough of an ending to say even Jarcrew, we're going to be doing some shows with us. But the, it's it's an ending to all mm-hmm. intents and purposes. Um, but no, they were they were all genuinely records at one stage or another that I loved. A New Kingdom, I think, is probably the only example of a time I heard a song on Radio One and went, Radio One, what wow. the fuck is that, Steve Lamac? I mean, and I went, fucking hell, what's that? Mm -hmm. That's weird as fuck. Like, Uh, it's it's just, it's not normal. It's weird as fuck. Yeah, it's not normal. That guy's voice is fucking amazing. Like yeah. the other rapper in it has a more g- generic kind of in- post-industrial rapper kind of voice. Mm-hmm. Still really good, but that that guy I don't know the guy's name Osage. again. I don't know. Yeah, I don't Osage. really know. Don't really know. A friend of mine, Ant, he was in a band who toured with them and said they were like lovely guys, which again just fills you with joy. Mm-hmm. That's what you want to hear. Yeah. Um, but that guy's like the, you know because he does most of the songs, doesn't he? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, he the does, other guy yeah. I think does maybe four of the songs. The other guy's really good. It's not to downplay it, mm-hmm. but his voice is just totally unique. It's got these unique tones which you just can't. Nobody's ever done that like him. I think. Yeah, they're 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 very interesting. Like I, I love hip hop, and like, I mean they both love hip hop, and this is a kind of hip hop that I haven't heard, really heard before. It's like it's almost psychedelic. You know, there's a lot of psychedelic. It's, it feels dead druggy in places. You know, his voice oh, yeah. sounds like he sounds like he's drunk the whole time, which is obviously yeah. his style. The affectation yeah. of it is really, really cool. I think um, there's just a lot of really good songs and a, a lot of really clever stuff happens in it as well, especially for hip hop and especially of the time it came out. You know, yes, I think that's key, isn't it? That's, yeah. that's key. And when I saw them live, and the only time I ever saw them live was at the Reading Festival, so you could say I never really saw them live. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure the blend of it worked as successfully as it does on the record, so probably exactly the opposite with Jar Crew. Um, I did see the God Machine live supporting the Afghan Wigs um, when I was, again, when I was relatively young, and they were they were great live as well, but just something about them was unbearably tragic again, even before even before there was something unbearably tragic. But with um, Nuke, live, it was just... Maybe live, it was too close to being a band, Mm-hmm. Whereas on record, mm-hmm. it had that right balance between. I don't really have the lexicon for, to talk about hip hop as, in as much as I do about rock music, but there's just something about the balance of that record, which is for the most part great. At times, it's it's a bit dated in the in the way that maybe the samples or loops are used. It's very mm-hmm. again like a lot of the industrial music at the time, um, like maybe some of the guitar squalls or maybe sound a little bit generic with the benefit of time to look at it but I 
think I'm really attracted to vocalists who sound like tramps. <laughs> See, um, the, one of the guys himself, just we were trying to talk about the leg skin, one of the guys referred to it as performed hip-hop, and I think there was sort of an emphasis there on the fact that they used a band, you know, the, the, the used musicians. Because, I mean, mm. was it Sebastian Laws? He came from hardcore punk bands. That was yeah. that was his, you know, up, upbringing in music. He wasn't, mm. you know... Purely a, a hip hop or rap guy, mm. and and so yeah, they they seem to place an emphasis themselves on the fact that this music was being played, and not in a, to the the Rage Against Machine extent of like being a full out and out rock band, because as you say, the the on record it, it was quite it was quite different, but yeah. I think it sounds quite played on record as well. It, it, there's a lot of really clever production on it. Um, whenever I've seen mm. hip hop live with a band, it's usually a hip hop artist who's either reinterpreted lar- large parts of their music to make it mm. work with a band, and that's a stylistic decision for that tour. Mm. Or there maybe a band like Why, who who are actually yeah. a live band, you know, and that's part of their the whole vibe. Um, some of the stuff on this is just really cool. Like some of the the ninety samples and the beats are quite good, are are quite dated, but you mm. know. It's got this kind of trip-hop feel almost. It feels like it could have come from Bristol in the early 90s. Yeah, you know that uh, Tricky spent time in studio with him? He was apparently, that they were a big influence on Tricky. Yeah, see, oh, that that, that yeah. totally makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. But then they've got a lot of like almost Jimi Hendrix style blues guitars happening in places, you mm. know, and lots of strange effects. Um, there's songs that actually sound like they've been recorded and played underwater, which is just a totally bizarre thing. But it just really brings this whole laid back kind of psychedelic vibe out in a way that I've never really heard in hip hop before. And to me, I was like, holy shit, what is this? I, like, I, I remember I bought what I saw. Just after I bought it, I woke up in my ex-girlfriend's room. We were still friends. It wasn't part of an elaborate sting. Um, <laughs> and I'd, we'd been drinking or smoking. I don't know what's the fucking difference when you're 22. And I had that album on. I was in a room by myself. I think she was downstairs probably probably making baked potatoes, if I remember anything about it. <laughs> not, not a euphemism. Um, and... I fell asleep and I was listening to it and I woke up during one of the songs towards the end and it was genuinely like being in a nightmare. <laughs> it's There's some really fucked up weird stuff on there, which, and I think it's fucked up and weird because it, it escapes the, the more traditional trappings of the time because obviously that stuff didn't sound dated at the time because mm-hmm. it was the time. Um, now it's some of it sounds dated, but some of it... Like to be quite honest with you, I preferred when I first heard it. I think I preferred the other guy's voice, mm-hmm. you know. Whereas as the years have gone by, because that was more the stuff I was listening to at the time. Whereas over the years, the more unique aspects of it have come out, and the two things support each other. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's like, what's your favourite one of Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer? You're like, oh, for fuck's sake, which part of Double Act do you not do you not, do you not understand? It's Bob, but still, don't ask. Um, but, yeah, um, like it's it's very swampy sounding. You know, yeah, it's that's, it that's the right like, way. Yeah. It does sound like it's coming from like 
it's weird because the more you listen to it, the more you realise there's, there's some sinister stuff happening in the background beyond this this kind of psychedelic haze. There's something creepy happening. Well, you, I, yeah, I definitely I get quite a sort of like a cabaret vibe that you and I guess his voice also, but just overall a quite Tom Waitsy vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to mm-hmm. a few of his records, you know, and we mm-hmm. talked about Tom before, but um, I think that thing you yeah, just identified about something going on beforehand, underneath that. I mean, that's explicitly happening in that God Machine record as well. There's that that kind of swell of sound and everything which links mm-hmm. all the songs together, which again is the kind of thing if you normally told me about, I wouldn't so much roll my eyes as immediately <laughs> stab myself in the face so I never had to be exposed to it again. <laughs> um, but but the, the, there is a there is a whole atmosphere to that record which you can't which is can't be an accident. Yes, no. it, it certainly seems like it would be a conscious decision because the the whole thing's meticulously crafted. Even the songs that have choruses and are more single worthy, like Unicorns mm. with Horses, for example. It kind of straddles a line between kind of really chill and druggy, but it's also mm. being kind of sinister and with yeah. a hook which kind of draws you in. And mm. there's a lot of different things happening in different levels there that it's definitely not accidental, you know, that's clearly engineered to be like that. And mm. that was the most impressive thing for me about this album. There was, you know, the songs like, I don't know, Co Pilot. <laughs> has got like funky 80s guitars a wee bit of like a slappy 80s bass but then there's just weird vocal samples and mm. some scratching and stuff happening in, it. in the background you're like oh this, this shouldn't sound strange but it does and it's yeah I really enjoyed it I'm going to go back and listen to this more because it just it left an impression on me that kind of made me feel unsettled but in a good way it's like, the first album's back. great as well The first album's great as well, but the second album just hit me at the right time. If Unicorns or Horses is just... The fact that chorus is just incredible. That's a mm. chorus in a song on a radio? You're joking. Like, yeah. what the fuck? Was, that, was that the song perfect. that you heard on Steve O'Mac? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Such a weird... Like, there's something about it which is massive. I just... And, you know, you can have all those constituent parts. Just because you've got big drums and lots of reverb on the vocals doesn't necessarily mean it's all going to be massive does it it yeah. was just something magic about it again it's probably just that moment in time for me hearing it and as usual waiting for a baked potato to cook you know? <laughs> smell a baked potato early 20s <laughs> you know, really craving carbs craving carbs the andrew Falk you know, story Andy, if you think your lexicon in hip hop is limited, then you've never met me, man. But um, I mean, I am I am perpetually the whitest guy in the room, and when it comes to you know the hip hop albums that crop up in the show, sometimes I struggle a wee bit. So I'm gonna I'm gonna lay some very honky references on the table here. Um, but I would say I, 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 I would say delete that. <laughs> that, that is definitely staying in um, But uh, I actually heard a lot of John Spencer's Blues Explosion And I'd seen him mentioned in relation to them I think I get the feeling right, he was quite quite into them Yeah, 
You know, because John Spencer kind of notoriously loves a lot of kind of quite analog hip hop and kind of seeks to replicate it in the beats and the performance of 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 their music. Um, also, and I hope I hope I'm on the the right path here. In the stuff that you've written, I mean, one of the things I associate. To, to something not so much with McCluskey, but with Future Left, you, you went in a lot more for big beat, and there's tracks where they're they're built around a sort of big beat. The the, the structure, the superstructure of the song, is this big chunky. Repeated. Oh, you mean a big beat as opposed yeah, I mean, to like, big beat, like right? Yeah, okay. yeah. And I think I think like things like Kept by Bees, which we've got to mention earlier on, or the, the track Something Happened. Be honest. One can tell them apart Things are awkward Things uh, The track Fuck the Countryside Alliance They all have very distinctive Kind of percussive motifs in them That whilst they're not by any stretch Hip hop or even hip hop tangential they, they, they show a sort of sensibility That I think I can see commonalities When I was listening to this I could hear the space in the room In the grooves And it's something that you seem In your own writing To have kind of like developed more uh, as, you've, as you've gotten older Yeah, I mean, I, I, probably the main... I listened to rock music, particularly stuff like Queen, until I was about 15 or 16, and then basically I pretty much exclusively listened to hip-hop for about three years. And then I remember one of the moments I fell out of love with hip-hop was seeing, like, the um, the video for the second Wu-Tang album, the first single's called Gravel Pit, and the, the, the video's basically like, well... The Flintstones, <laughs> yeah, the Flintstones, but even, but unbelievably, one million times more sexist, if that's possible. <laughs> yeah. um, it was basically like an updated White Snake video, um, <laughs> and I just remember, just I, I don't know, it making me really, really uncomfortable with it. That's what it is. Hey, Maybe I just wasn't had... very worldly. So, um, but for me, it, it put me off, and I moved away from hip hop for a long time. And I'm still not fully back. I mean, really, the hip-hop I like. I mean, so New Kingdom was about that, you know, just after that time, actually. probably. Uh, but, I mean, for me, really, the only later stuff that I've heard, which I really liked, would have been, like, I love the um, uh, the Mouse and the Mask, the um, MF oh, yeah. Doom and Danger yeah. Mouse record. I, Danger absolutely, I absolutely love that record more. That's my favourite. Maybe I just haven't heard the right records. Like I say, it's not the where I delve, but that's my favourite hip-hop album of the last 20 years. Is this thing on like the fling with Mrs. King Kong this spring gone? Sing a song of slap happy crappiness. He came to flow like it was strapped to his nappy chest. Surely I jest. The best on a wireless mic, not an eye test. Yet I digress. Like we've we've had this conversation quite a bit in the show, and we've kind of tiptoed around the kind of complex conversation of you know that genre and its misogyny and you know double standards and and how it's approached and how it's read by the audience. Um, but we have also managed to find I think a number of hip hop albums that have kind of swum against that current. And there's people like POS, um, albeit 
you know, POS had his own sort of brush with notoriety. We've had uh, people like Saul Williams who seem to share that sort of distaste for the tropes that have become the norm in hip hop. And whilst they've kept a lot of the musical sensibilities, they've sort of eschewed the, these these other aspects of it. And it's quite refreshing. So there Anal- are definitely analysis of hip hop is literally an intersectional minefield, isn't it? Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Where do you where so, do you even where do you even begin? So the way I don't I begin is by not beginning, and it's one of those situations like whenever anybody's talking about anything, is you just listen to them and eventually you agree with somebody or you you agree with somebody a little bit less because because also frankly, it's okay not to know because mm-hmm. all the people involved in it don't necessarily know and you don't want to make it like you know. Muslims with Saudi Arabia or or Jews with Israel. Not every person of colour involved in hip-hop needs to have an opinion on how, what hip-hop is. Yeah. But necessarily it tends to come it tends to come to that, doesn't it? Because of the way press works and everything. Um, I kind of struggled with it for those reasons and I'm not, I'm not somebody who probably even considers myself as somebody who needs to have an activist bent to stuff when I'm listening. I'm not I'm not an activist for a fucking star. I'm somebody who tries to follow my own conscience, but I really did struggle with it. I had a a friend of a girlfriend I had when I was in my early thirties. She was she was a amazing, amazing woman and she was a, she was a feminist in the most strident sense of the word. But in a way that you know, and in, in an arguable way, but not fucking, not fucking shy about getting into fights with everybody all over the, all over the shop. In a way which just wasn't, you know, what it's like somebody can propagate certain views and they come across like a dick. Somebody else can say the same, the same things, and it's just it's real, and there's something right about it. It's the, mm. it's the messenger as well as the message. Sadly, for convincing people about things, but she mm. basically she had. I don't think it was a job, but she definitely did some hip hop DJ and like you know rap mostly, but hip hop like in general. And I remember asking her once, "How do you you know, how do you um, square that circle?" And she just went, "I just don't think about it." That's the only way for me to do it is to not think about it. I'm like, is that a cop out? She's like, probably. <laughs> well, in fact, no, definitely. And you're like, okay, you know, because it doesn't. I don't as a as a as a white. Well, I don't know. Having read some tr- threads recently, am I middle class or am I from planet fuck? I don't know, but I'm a working class middle class white man from a place which knows no coats. So. How else do you listen to a lot of hip hop except vicariously? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know. So I, I try. Apart from all that stuff I said, <laughs> I try not to give my opinion. <laughs> try not to have an opinion apart from yeah. Video. But I try, I try to have a huge opinion on why I don't have an opinion. You know, <laughs> that's the yeah, that's, that's the, the basic fundamental. That's the basic fundamentals of it. But I think it's a really magical record. Yes. So yeah. very much, I suppose, like like the other two records, very much a part of its time. Mm-hmm. Well, I, yeah. I mean, even if none of our listeners like these three albums and take anything from it, I personally have really enjoyed all three. <laughs> oh, amazing! So anything that's, on top of that is a bonus. But it's very, it's very punk. Yeah, that's very nice because you're not talking about stuff which you know flows wildly through popular culture, and mm-hmm. and I suspect knowing things, knowing all of Jar Crew, having met 
the, the singer of the God Machine and knowing things about New Kingdom, I'm sure all of those people would be really satisfied with that. So that's that's really lovely, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for um, absolutely bring, coming bringing on. those absolute to the table. So, Andy, we have a final present for you as a as a thank you. Um, we maybe told you in advance about a thing called the Nexus but what, what we do is we, we pull a name out of the hat once a week and the guest or the subject of the podcast we have to we have to Nexus them to that person the, This is the first time we're seeing Nexus tonight Will it be the last? What do they have in store for us? Why am I here? You're in the Nexus. This is the Nexus. For you, this is what you want. So Rain the three with. of us, the three of us, had the the task of connecting you in as many or as few interesting steps as possible to Meatloaf. <laughs> <laughs> right. That was okay. the name that the, that was the name that the pot produced, right? So uh that's what's gonna happen now. Um guys, uh who wants to go first? Do you want me to I'll us? happily go first. David. Yeah. I so Mr. Falkus, I believe that in was it two thousand and nine UK music decided to use your letter about illegal downloading in a, mm. a full page advert of The Guardian. Mm. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They did. Although, really, it was about leaks, early leaks of albums. But yeah, that's right. You know, that future of the left album would be yeah, as opposed to the illegal downloading per se. As I tried to tell them all at the time, but never mind. Yeah. You know. um, now, UK Music, the uh, association, is a British umbrella organisation and is currently chaired by Tom Watson the uh, former Secretary of State and Deputy Leader of the Labour Party, uh, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> does, does, didn't he do some work for Wonga or something? I think. Didn't yeah, he I think some, he did. Um, in his first year in Parliament in 2001, he launched a campaign to ban album sales of Gary Glitter. <laughs> uh, that was like one of his key, key policies was people cannot buy Gary Glitter records anymore. Um, which kind of fell by the wayside. Um, yeah, it was la- not last year, but the year before in 2019, there was a bit of controversy because Rock and Roll Part 2 by Gary Glitter was used in the Joker movie starring Joaquin Phoenix. Um, and Yeah, <laughs> because he was, um, you know, obviously co-writer and re- would have received lump sum as a convicted uh, paedophile. Uh that Joker film, which I know you really liked, Chris, I thought was bang average. Um, another uh, actor who has recently played the Joker, uh, the Joker, the Joker is uh, Juarez Leto. Oh, don't do um, it. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> in the Suicide Squad. Um, I, don't, I, I haven't seen those movies at all. But uh, Juarez Leto also appeared in Fight Club alongside a Mr. Meatloaf. Bob. So there you are. That's uh, Andrew Focus sure. to Meatloaf in wow. six 
links and only one paedophile mentioned. <laughs> that, that, I mean, watching Juarez Leto get his face pummeled in that film is definitely his finest it's a joy. It's a joy. <laughs> True joy. Uh, Mark, yeah, me, you. I'll go next. Uh, mine's just dead oh, short, as as is uh, usually my MO. That's that's, that's Mark's style. Yeah. He's just in and out. So uh, on the future <laughs> of the left album, the plot against common sense. You've got a really good song called Robocop Four. Fuck off, Robocop. As you know that in the first Robocop film, do you know the guy that played uh, Curtis Bodecker was a guy called uh, Kurtwood Smith. Yeah. I know the character, but I didn't. I wasn't aware of his uh, his given name. Well, he also appeared in a, a film from 1980 called Rody, which stars Meatloaf as the main character. Uh, yes, yeah. he, he plays a, a gentleman called Travis W. Redfish. The, the film Rody is actually about a, a Rody, funnily enough. Uh, but it's got yeah. it's got loads of people in it, like it's um, a massive cameo central. Yeah, yeah. it's got a band with Debbie Harry in it, doesn't it? It's got it's got yeah. Blondie in it. It's got Alice Cooper in it. Um, mm. It's got Roy Orbison in it. Hank Williams Jr. It's fucking stinking. Yeah, it's a shit <laughs> film. I've never seen it. Don't, don't think I'm ever going to yeah. see it. But yeah, R- Rody. I mean, the, the, the clues in the title, innit? <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Wow, that that was that was quick, mate. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Andy, I usually give these guys a hard time because they're always using movies in the next eye, right? And movies, that's that's some fucking that's some easy meat. I don't like using movies because it's too fucking simple. Okay. Too many cast members. Yeah. I do like mentioning Nazis. Okay, so. <laughs> Andy Falkus, you had a dad. Your dad <laughs> apparently rewrote the song There is a Green Hill Far Away. Yeah. For a for for a child's kind of um for a children nativity thing, yeah. And then you kind of broke his heart by saying that you preferred the original, yeah. um, which I don't anymore. But yeah, that's that's the, that is the case. Yeah. So another alternative version of that song uh, was by the 18th century poet William Cowper. Mark, you're, you're the, the the literary one amongst us. Do you know William Cowper? I actually don't know. Right. Uh, well, you're losing it. <laughs> uh, William Cowper was seen as a bit of a forerunner of the Romantic poetry movement uh, quite an intense guy uh, he uh, he had some fights with depression serious ones that also led to him spending time in an insane asylum uh, prior to one of those trips to an insane asylum he re uh, he sort of he came up with his own version of that tune which was titled there is a fountain filled with blood mm-hmm. uh, that's nice <laughs> that's nice that's he was nice. apparently bit Apparently very good friends with the guy John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. Um, But uh, William Cowper was actually a bit of a fucking lad in a good way. Uh, He wrote a lot of anti-slavery poetry, which, I mean, for the the 18th century is fucking good going. Um, And he was a big supporter of the abolitionists. Uh, His 1788 poem, The Negro's Complaint, was often quoted by Martin Luther King in speeches. Um, So William Cowper, props to that, did way ahead of the curve. Um, Martin Luther King's assassination in 1968 and the riots that followed it were actually uh, repeatedly cited by a Mr Charles Manson uh, there's your first swastika um, as the what he saw as the beginning of the Great Race War yeah. he was always telling telling his followers about and it sort of was part of what spurred him uh, part of what spurred him into action uh, regarding the Manson family murders because they actually began uh, with the, the, the murder of African Americans including one man who was killed and then they attempted to, to pin the killing on the Black Panthers to, to, to discredit them at the time. 
Um, by the way, weirdly, given all this chat, Martin Luther King, Charles Manson, obviously a very racist guy, his second son was called Charles Luther Manson. And I don't know yeah. where the Luther was coming from. Anyway, so weirdly, and I think I might have used this in one of the very early episodes we did, okay, but Charles Manson obviously was on the, the, the west coast of the USA. In Meatloaf's autobiography to Helen Back, which I read in about 2003 on a trip to uh, the, the northwest of Spain, and I have to say it was honestly one of the fucking most enjoyable biographies I've ever read. It's fucking brilliant. He gets about 17 concussions in the course of this book, including getting his head stuck in the steering wheel of a Cadillac because he was checking out a girl's bum. Um, right, But one of the chapters in this is only about five pages long, and it's Meatloaf describing driving down what I think the Pacific Coast Highway was um, State Route 1, or whatever it's called. And he's driving down that highway on his way into LA. And he sees a hitchhiker and he stops and he picks up the hitchhiker, which was something that he just he said he just did semi-regularly. And he would chat to them, they'd put on tunes, and he's talking to this hitchhiker and the guy's really, really into music. And they talk, get to talking about the Beatles and then the guy starts getting really intense about the Beatles, starts talking about the messaging and helter-skelter and all these kind of things. Eventually, Meatloaf drops him off and what had started as being quite a nice little car ride had gotten a little bit fucking weird so he was quite relieved when the guy got out of the car and he says just a few months later he's watching the news and it's Charles Manson getting arrested for the Manson family murders and that's who he'd picked up in his car on the way down the coast Well, meatloaf wow. do, do, you, do you believe that story or does it does I do it, believe does it, it I actually do believe that story, meatloaf like, there's something about that autobiography, as much as meatloaf's 17 concussions clearly left him with some permanent br- brain damage no, these see, days there's, See there's a song title, Meat, Meat, Meatloaf's 17 concussions <laughs> That's a song title I mean, and that, that well, song would not be about meatloaf if, the, if these three hours of podcasting have brought you anything, they've brought you at least one decent working song title. I'm going to make a note of Meatloaf 17 concussions because where's my, where's my title master list? I've got it in notes somewhere. Can you peek behind I, the car? I wrote, a, I wrote a song yesterday called Imagine a Bass Player. So, <laughs> Meatloaf 17. 17. And there's a song called... Like it. This will be a real feather in our cap if that ever does make let's, it. Let's see. You end. never know. You know. <laughs> I mean, I did try and write a song last week called Endless North London Police Helicopter. So, <laughs> um, so uh, and, a, and a big black piss take called Jesus Population Jesus. <laughs> so, so, uh, yeah. so we've got a lot of competition is what you're saying. Mm. So Andy, just... As a final bonus thing before we say goodbye, the last and possibly most important nexus that we could have come up with is the fact that uh, I believe you apparently uh, would Julia um, via an interpretive dance to the song China in Your Hand by Tpao. Correct. I wouldn't say wooed. That would be in it. <laughs> and um, famously, uh, Meatloaf would do anything for love, but he wouldn't do that. He and that was that. the that. Wow, that's a short. That, that that's not much a nexus as a nexet. But um, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, I, I I don't think myself or Julia will ever forget that moment. I'm not a dancer um, at the best of times, but it was there's something about that song. 
It paid off when it counted, Andy. It paid off when it counted. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Eyes wide like a child in the form of man. I mean, we're in we're in areas none of us ever needed to go at that point. You know, <laughs> what, where where even are you, Carol? Where are you? I don't know where you are, and I don't know if you'll ever get to come back. Um, but, but yeah. I, I enjoy. I enjoyed all of those. You, you, you definitely need more hobbies, but they were. Who knew you and Meatloaf lived such parallel existences? Um, Andy, thanks for being so generous with your time. Yep, no that problem at all, mate. So really enjoyed a it. lot. A lot of fun. That one micro can of Diet Coke about a week ago has served you really, really well. <laughs> it has. It's kept me going. And, I, you know, I didn't do any childcare in the interim and my cats wandered in. I think Bonsai here has lost. How much weight you lost, darling? Uh, yeah, a, a lot of weight anyway. But, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. And, actually, my Bluetooth headphones are just running out of juice as we're wrapping up. So, over this, you know, week oh, period. Perfect. So, get the, the Jabras, mate. Week-long battery life. Fucking so <laughs> Well, I'm going to uh, I'm going to leave you guys, and I'm going to go and watch the last ever episode of Sopranos for the first ever time. Oh, holy shit! Yep. Okay. Okay. That's how my yep. night's that's how my night's going to end. Yep. Um, so yeah, a total buzz. Thank you very much. No, I'm an absolute pleasure. And Thank you. I really hope if that, that show we're doing next year, if you guys want to come along, just obviously let us know and um, maybe get a maybe get a beer or something, and hopefully in uh, non. Non plague times, that would be that would be very sweet. Yeah, that would be a treat. That would be nice. Good stuff. Yes. All right, take care of yourself, Andy. I hope Julia is much, feeling well. Yeah, and thank you, man. Yeah, get through the rest of this lockdown uh, in good health, man. Yeah, All right. take care. Don't don't fuck it up unless it's really funny. Bye bye. Bye bye.